here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. And now to my final guest today, the new World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion, Canada's own Bret the Hitman Hart, who will risk his title against Ric Flair. You know, I can't begin to describe what a great feeling it is to stand here right now with the World Wrestling Federation championship belt over my shoulder. This is a dream come true. I worked my whole life since I was this tall to get this far. And I know all those years paid off. And I also know what got me this far. All my fans that have supported me over the past eight years, they've been with me every inch of the way. And I know that they helped me get this far. They've supported me. And I like to think of myself as of right now, the people's champion. You know, I got Ric Flair breathing down my neck. He wants his rematch. He wants his title back. But let me tell you something, Ric Flair. It took me a long time to get this far, and I'm not going to lose to you. Ric Flair, to be the man, you got to beat the man. And now, Ric Flair, I'm happy to say that I am the man. It's my music. Break it down. It's the king. Oh, you didn't know. Stand back. I'm a nice man. I'm a Do you smell what the rock is cooking? Eat me. You're listening to Music of the Mat on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling. It's all part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network i'm your host andrew rich and joining me today once again is a fan favorite here on the show it's chris novembrino chris welcome back oh i'm happy to be here thank you for having me back yeah it's good to have you here definitely um now since the last time you were on the show which was i believe back in january you have now joined forces with uh, one jeff hawkins as uh, the new dynamic duo on Shake the Ropes, and Jeff was just on the previous episode, and uh, now here you are. So it's a little, uh, a little Shake Them Ropes back-to-back extravaganza, you might say, uh, Chris. Yes, yes, we are like the mega powers finally coming together. <laughs> and uh, your other podcast, uh, Lucha of the Hidden Temple, that's over, right? That's done. Yeah, yeah, that's that's over. I I did an announcement on Shake Them Ropes, but it was. Discontinued, not because of lack of interest in the podcast, but because I became disenfranchised with Lucha Underground in season four. I think they've just gotten too far away from what made the show good. Mm. I mean, that's just the way it goes in life, you know? I mean, one minute you're talking about Mil Mertes and Arhenis, and then the next you're talking about The Ascension and Curtis Axel. It's, it's the circle of life, Chris. 
Yeah, Jack Swagger's on your television screen in, in the most boring iteration you've ever seen. <laughs> you got to know your limits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the writing was on the wall. For me, it was like the mismanagement of Pentagon. At a certain point, it was too far gone. Once you lose Prince Puma, Ricochet, who is now doing bigger and better things in NXT, they needed to go all in on Pentagon. And in my opinion, they just vastly mismanaged the Pentagon push in every possible way. This guy was a star and this company couldn't capitalize on it. Well, uh, hopefully you'll have a much better time uh, doing this podcast than uh, talking about Lucha Underground. Well, I'm going to try not to let my somber mood about Lucha of the Hidden Temple carry into this show. Somehow, I think I will be able to overcome this. (laughs) So today, we are here on episode 47, and we are going to be looking at the theme history of the best there is, the best there was, and the best that there ever will be, Brett the Hitman Hart. Uh, of course, a few months back, we did an episode about his brother, Owen Hart, and his themes, and now we're going to be looking at Brett's themes. Uh, now, some people might think that the reason we're doing a show about Brett now is because it is November, we just had Survivor Series a few days ago, and Brett does have a uh, a somewhat notorious connection with Survivor Series. But really, uh, the reasoning is a lot flimsier and a lot more stupid than that. Uh, Chris, do you want to guess why we're doing a Bret Hart episode now? I don't know. This almost feels like a setup. Like, no, no. That you did want to do this related to Survivor Series, and instead you've come up with another reason. Is this some sort of mind slight? This is not a mind slight at all. No, no, no. Uh, It's just silly old Andrew because it's episode 47. 47 made me think of Agent 47 from the Hitman video games. And Hitman made me think of Bret the Hitman Hart. That's literally why I wanted to do a Bret Hart episode now. Where's Kevin Bacon in all of that? I feel like there's a six degrees of separation thing happening. Well, I don't know about Kevin Bacon, but I do know that Timothy Oliphant played Agent 47 in the Hitman movie back in the day. I'm sure Timothy Oliphant has been in a movie with Kevin Bacon. Oh, probably, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, but anyway, anyway, um, I'm sure there are other people, too, who probably think that a Bret Hart episode would take 20 minutes at the most because they only know the classic Bret Hart WWF theme, or the Hart Foundation theme. But don't forget, folks, Bret was in WCW, and he was also in New Japan for a little bit in the early to mid-80s. So we'll actually be looking at six songs today. Uh, Granted, three of them are basically variations of the same song, but still, Bret is more than just a one- or two-song guy. He has more themes than I think a lot of people realize. And that's why we're doing this episode, because I'm sure, you know, there are plenty of podcasts out there that have talked about Brett's career and his matches and family and controversies, all that stuff. But I doubt, Chris, that any of them uh, have ever talked about Bret Hart's WCW themes to the degree that we will on this very episode. (laughs) Yeah, and you managed to luck out and have one of the, I don't know, 50 people who are nerdy enough to actually like the Bret Hart (laughs) WCW themes 
So I, I'm here to offer a little bit of musical analysis as well. I've actually got my acoustic guitar here, which I won't have to use too much because most of Bret Hart's stuff is all in the same pocket of chords. It's kind of interesting. True, yeah. I, I think the simplicity is something that we will touch upon a lot more over the course of the episode. Um, now, if I remember correctly, uh, Chris, you were a WCW kid growing up. That was your team during the 90s. Am I right in saying that your main exposure to Bret Hart during his heyday was his time in WCW, or did you see him in WWF as well? So I definitely saw him in the WWF. Like When I was into wrestling, I would watch what was on television during the week, but to supplement not having enough wrestling to watch. Imagine a time where there was not enough wrestling to watch. Uh, I would go to Blockbuster Video, and I would rent WrestleMania 10 and other WWF videos that were there, because there were more WWF videos than there were WCW videos, although I'd rent those as well. So I watched a lot of Brett, and I watched a lot of Owen, and I watched you know all you know Royal Rumble 1993, all of those things on VHS on Coliseum Video, and then when Brett came to WCW in 1997, I was very excited, and obviously that underdelivered. But we're we're not necessarily here to talk about that side of it. But but for me, when he came to WCW, it was a big high profile pickup, and I was very excited. Yeah, I have very little exposure to Brett's WCW run. I, I've seen a few matches of his uh, that he had there, but for the most part, that run is pretty foreign to me. I know Brett from his stuff with the WWF. Uh, not in real time, obviously, but going back and watching those matches online, and, you know, I, I think Brett is one of those guys who he really makes you appreciate the wrestling aspect of pro wrestling. Because when I was a kid and I first started watching it, you know, I didn't know the difference between a quote-unquote good match or a quote-unquote bad match. I watched wrestling primarily for the characters and the storylines and the hero versus villain stuff. And if there were any cool flips or dives or whatnot, that was just, you know, icing on the cake. But as I grew up, I started to pay a lot more attention to the actual wrestling and become really attached and interested in seeing good matches and being excited specifically about the match quality. So when I went online and just devoured as much wrestling as I could, Brett was certainly one of those guys who helped me in that regard because he was just, you know, a fantastic wrestler. And he had so many great matches over the years, whether as a singles guy or in the Heart Foundation. And he did help shift my focus not completely away from characters and storylines, but much more towards the in-ring side of wrestling. I can't say it was the absolute first time that I ever thought, wow, this is a good match, but I remember one of the earliest matches that I saw where I thought the wrestling itself was very, very good, and I would have probably been, I don't know, maybe 9 or 10 years old at that point, was Brett and Owen at WrestleMania 10, I think it is. Yep. I, remember Russell, I remember renting it from Blockbuster Video, uh, and it definitely stuck out in my mind. I was like, wow, this is a really good match. As 
someone who grew up watching WCW and something that I've noticed going back and watching it now, I feel like commentary was a little more acute at putting over good form and good maneuvers. So, for example, they had Steven Regal, or he was Steven Regal, not William Regal at that point. And they always made sure to really accentuate the fact that Steven Regal was a very good wrestler. Larry Zbysko, for all of his many faults on commentary, was very good at making sure to highlight... Uh, look at what he's doing right here. That causes a lot of pain, whereas Vince McMahon's style of announcing is much more, as you were saying, heroes and villains and what a maneuvers. He was more about sticking to the script of the story he was trying to tell and less about calling a match. And I think that gave Bret Hart a certain appeal to me because I came into watching him with that eye for form, even at kind of a younger age. But but it wasn't like I was sitting there going, oh, that was a four-star match or anything like that. I just knew what a good arm drag looked like. Right, right. Yeah, there was always that sense of realism with Brett as well. I think that's another thing with Brett that made him so appealing as a wrestler because he came off as a wrestler. He wasn't a wacky, over-the-top character like so many other WCW guys. He looked and felt like a proper technical wrestler who was there to wrestle and to be the best. And that motivation... There wasn't a lot of showboating. No, no. That that motivation, that wrestling-wrestler character type, if that makes sense, is certainly... you know It's a lot more prevalent in wrestling nowadays. But back then, Brett was kind of an outlier. In the WWF, uh, you, you got guys like Repo Man and the Mountie and Papa Shango and so many other larger-than-life characters running around. And then you've got Brett, who carries himself, first and foremost, as a wrestler, who carries a real sense of maturity and dignity and honor and has a technical wrestling style that was outmatched by very few people. Um, I, I think Owen was certainly on his level. But not many others. Uh, if you want a comparison, I think uh, you can say the same for Dean Malenko in WCW. Where Benoit, it's, too. Benoit, too. Yeah, yeah. It's these guys who are just the cut above all the other wrestlers on a, on a technical level. Regal and, was at that level, too. I would say at that stage of his career. Sure. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you need guys like that, like Brett and Dean and Benoit and Regal on the roster to provide that realism and, and to get good matches out of you know some not-so-good opponents. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it is really interesting to think about Bret Hart's character in the context of all of those weird rosters of WWF. Like, Bret was wrestling doink. If you ever played that midway WWF game, it's like Bret Hart, the normal guy, versus Shawn Michaels, this guy who's covered in hearts and sparkly stuff, Doink the Clown, Razor Ramon, who is like a caricature, Diesel, who is a truck driver, and then later kind of became nothing. He sort of ended up being just this cool dude in leather, not unlike Bret Hart, basically a taller version of Bret Hart is what Vince McMahon modulated him to, and Repo Man and all these other characters. Those weren't on the Midway game, of course. But there are all these very clownish characters, and... Brett is very no-nonsense, and his wrestling style reflected that as well. So you have a lot of different things 
sort of pulling Brett in a very different direction than the rest of the roster. And I think it's in part because Brett was very protective of who the Bret Hart character was. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you watch like Wrestling with Shadows and Brett doesn't come across as a you know hang loose kind of guy. He comes off as someone who is very protective of his character and of his lineage as a member of the Hart family and also very protective of just being a wrestler. So I think that sense of realism was not just on screen, but very much part of Brett's real-life personality. And well, sometimes Brett, the gimmick gets to some wrestlers' heads, and, and right. I think to a certain extent that happened with Brett. He was so very good that I think he started to believe he was indeed the best there is, was, and ever will be. Yeah, but what's great, too, is that some of Brett's best stuff is based on that sense of realism and maturity. Uh, the legendary 97 run where Brett turned on the American fans and became a heel, that was all based on Brett being the serious, dignified hero, the, the, the best technical wrestler, the all-around good guy role model, and him being offended by the American fans who were now cheering for this brazen, rough-and-tumble outlaw Stone Cold Steve Austin and booing Brett. And then he brings in Canada as being superior to the U.S. because they appreciate him. And that leads to the whole U.S. versus Canada feud. And then that leads to the DX versus Heart Foundation feud, where it's the serious Heart Foundation versus the immature DX. And that's why I think people look back so fondly on 97 Bret Hart, because he was always a great wrestler, but now he could really sink his teeth into some juicy character work that played off real-life sentiments. You know, Bret really did take wrestling so seriously and was not a big fan of the company going in that Attitude Era direction throughout 97. And Shawn Michaels was a guy who wasn't always taking things seriously, and that really offended Bret Hart. Yeah. Because he was being elevated to Bret's level, even though Shawn wasn't always the hardest worker behind the scenes. In the ring, his work was great, but, you know, he had troubles, and that was problematic. I don't think Bret had that much of a problem with Austin, though. I, I no, think that, that no, was no, mostly no, no. about business, like, you know, th that they were doing an act. Yeah, Bret and Austin are really good friends in real life. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah sure. So that, that whole Bret-Austin thing was totally just on screen. Yeah, um, yeah, no, no, but, but, but I was saying uh, that that wasn't playing off of actual felt right, personal right, resentments. Yeah. But the other thing that was happening in 97 that made that whole era so fun, you mentioned it, was the U.S. versus Canada thing because it allowed the Hart Foundation to be the good guys one week and the bad guys the next week and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, I mean, talk about a unique feud. You've got this stable of guys who are basically feuding with not just a group of wrestlers, but with an entire country, <laughs> all of America pretty much. Yes, right. And when they would go to Canada, it'd be like Bizarro World, where everyone would cheer the hearts, and they started booking it accordingly, where the hearts were the good guys. Yeah, it was a hell of a feud, and uh, one of Brett's best, that's for sure, yeah. All right, uh, so let's get to the crux of the episode, the themes of Bret Hart, and we'll start in New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's where Bret wrestled on and off during the early to mid-80s. 
His theme there was done by an artist named Tony Williams, featuring Jan Hammer. It's off the album The Joy of Flying, and it's called Eris. used to only hearing Brett's WWF theme, then this first song might be a bit of a shock to the system, because in a lot of ways, it's the opposite of what Brett's WW theme was. There's Are no... you trying to tell me that you don't associate Bret Hart with a sitar? Not really, no. <laughs> no. Uh, there's no squealing guitar intro, no simple, steady percussion beat, or repetitive melodies on the keyboards or rhythm guitars. There doesn't seem to be any real order to the song, at least to me. It just starts with that ethereal whooshing noise, then the keyboards start to come in, and then the drums kick off, and the guitars, and, and things just go crazy from there. And then it just ends. Uh, to me, it's sort of like a tornado that slowly comes your way, and then it passes on by, and all the noise and debris is flying around and it's just total chaos. And then it's just gone, like that. So Eris has a real chaotic nature to it, which makes sense because it's jazz fusion and that genre puts a lot of emphasis on unconventional arrangements and improvisation and whatnot. And it's called Eris. Eris is the Greek goddess of discord and strife. And that sentiment certainly comes across with the song here, uh, Chris. So, I actually think that there's a little bit more order inside of this chaos than might appear at first blush. So, one thing that's interesting, and I think this is entirely accidental, but we established this thing called a pedal tone. And it actually runs through pretty much all of Bret Hart's theme songs, at least in the WWF ones. Uh, Everything in... WWF all is underneath this. There's always that low E going. And in Eris here, we actually have an F. And that low note continues to resonate, and and they actually just keep playing it over and over again. And from there, the melody goes on top. And that melody has two different repeats. So the first time it goes, wah, 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 wah. And then the second time around, that melody changes, and it's a different chord voicing, but it's all over that pedal tone. Now, what makes it chaotic is you have this drummer who is doing a ton of like three over two fills and five over four fills and all of these very, very aggressive 
prog rock fills. This is actually some very, very good drumming. Man, it's really, really good. And Jan Hammer is using a very interesting keyboard tone. He's very, very good at using the modulation knob so that he can bend these notes. So his keyboard tone, I think he's driving it through like a flanger or a phaser and amps. So it's getting something that approximates or comes very, very close to a guitar tone. And then he's doing all of those bends, those incredible bends. It's actually more structured than it sounds on first blush, but it, it is also written to be loose as well. But the drummer knows when the keyboard is going back to the melody or what you call in jazz the head. Yeah, I mean, this is a real, a real, a real noise fest. <laughs> it's, it's intense. It's it's very intense. And the first listen, you're like, "Whoa, what is going on here?" But if you go back and listen again, you'll start to hear that melodic phrase that actually does indeed make up the core of the song. And then in between it, there's very, very intense improvisation. And it's not the kind of song where you hear it and Bret Hart immediately comes to mind. For one thing, it doesn't have that that level of attachment to Brett or that level of cultural fame in wrestling where you hear the song and you think, oh, this is Bret Hart's theme. And for good reason, too, because Bret Hart's New Japan run is obviously not as well-documented or well-known as his other runs. Uh, But also, Eris is a song that you wouldn't really associate with Brett just in the way it sounds, because Brett is not a chaotic kind of wrestler. He, he's smart, he's technical, and he's pretty even-keeled, too. Not that Brett can't get aggressive in the ring, of course. Uh, but, but he's never like this. He's never like no, frantic no. drum fills. He's not like a Bruiser Brody or a Stan Hansen where he's coming out, you know, all guns blazing as soon as the music hits. Brett keeps a steady pace, which is something that, you know, this song does not do. Yeah, this is actually music that fits someone who wrestles more like Liger. I was trying to think of a high-flying wrestler from that era. This is a high-flyers theme song. Now, if you want a better Greek god-related theme song, I would go with Sirius. That actually fits Brett a lot more by the Alan Parsons Project. Oh, yeah, yeah, Ricky Steamboat's theme. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you know, but that would also fit Brett, too. It's very steady. It's very straightforward plotting, but it also works, of course, with Steamboat. To be fair, though, with Eris, we're not talking about Brett the Hitman Hart here. We're just talking about young Brett Hart, who at this point in time is still part of Stampede Wrestling, uh, which is the promotion that uh, Brett's dad, Stu Hart, founded and ran for many decades. And New Japan probably didn't give any real thought to Brett's music because he's just this kid coming over. So we'll just give him this random jazz song that someone had in the back on record. Well, this is perfect for the Gaijin jobber because it's unmemorable. Here comes this guy, here comes this sort of exciting music, but it's just like, it's very chaotic and it's you're not going to be humming this hook on the way home probably. Yeah, Brett doesn't have a defined character yet. You know, he's still finding his way. Um, also, it was kind of the same with Owen, too, in New Japan. Was this also Owen's theme? No, no, they, they gave him this kind of pseudo-prog-rock instrumental type thing that didn't really fit him that well. But, um, but anyway, anyway, in 
1984, Brett joins the WWF because Stampede Wrestling was bought by Vince McMahon. And originally, the idea was to make Bret Hart a cowboy. Cowboy Bret Hart, which thankfully did not happen. Uh, Instead, Bret became Bret the Hitman Hart, and he would team up with Jim the Anvil Neidhart as the Hart Foundation, with the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, no relation, as their manager. Uh, Jimmy Hart would also do their entrance music, uh, him and his partner, J.J. McGuire, and the song is called Heartbeat. This is more like it. This song, I'm sure, is in a lot more people's wheelhouses than Eris is. Because this song definitely has had a lot more exposure to wrestling fans over the years than Eris has. And as a wrestling theme that is meant to represent the wrestlers and represent the Heart Foundation, this is excellent. Because with the Heart Foundation, you've got Jim Neidhart, who is the powerhouse of the duo. He's the heavy. And we hear all throughout the song, like you said, Chris, that lower E from the beginning, that dun 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 that that pounding beat just hitting you over and over and over again. But the song also has that main melody too. The That's the little dash of technique in the song that makes it more than just a mindless punch-em-up. And that's who Brett was in the team. He was the agile technician who served as the lighter, faster counterpart to Neidhart's thick bruiser. So the song is just a great representation of the blending of these two guys. Not the best quality here, of course, uh, because it never got an official release, but it's definitely a great song regardless. Yeah, I think working with Jimmy Hart was critical for Brett and Jim because that meant that Jimmy was going to spend some time and be mindful about what would be a good theme song for these guys. And when Jimmy applied himself, you get a lot of very good songs, at least compositionally. You may not like the arrangements, and some of the arrangements have not aged particularly well, this one included. But I I love a lot of the stuff that's going on here. I I like the kind of Bon Jovi-inspired, the lo-fi Bon Jovi-inspired interplay between the guitar and the keyboard. I think that fits Bret Hart's persona very well. 
the keyboard is sort of like this updated version of the horns, kind of giving Brett that fanfare. And and yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I think something very important happens melodically when we get to that. And the little... Like, I think that adds just this little punch that if it was just the... Now, what's interesting, too, Jim Johnson, I, I don't want to cheat too much ahead, but I, I need to note this somewhere, and I think it makes sense to do this now. Jimmy Hart, his melody for the guitar line is slightly different than the Jim Johnston interpretation. This is going to get a little vanilla icy, and I, I've been <laughs> practicing this to make this the least vanilla icy I can, but we are just quibbling over one note here, and it's dung, 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 dung. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, here we go. So the Jimmy Hart version goes like this. But the Jim Johnston version goes. You can hear the difference there, right? There's that one note versus the two notes. So it's interesting to see that Johnston chooses to tweak it a little bit. I think it makes sense because Jimmy Hart if my ear is not tricking me, is actually doing that melody line on a kind of keyboard that is approximating a guitar rather than an actual guitar. Yeah, I mean, that was the 80s. You know, that was that was the time when when keyboards sort of took the place for the guitar in a lot of songs. Yeah, 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 that keyboards that are masked as guitars. It's a weird sound. Yeah. I, I think what works too is the simplicity of it all. You know, I mentioned the chaotic sound and fury of Eris not being a good fit for Bret Hart. This is very much the opposite of Eris when it comes to the complexity of the composition. This is a pretty straightforward song, but with the Hart Foundation, straightforward was what you got. You don't need a crazy, complex song because they weren't a crazy, complex tag team. They didn't have face paint and spikes like Demolition. They didn't fly across the ring like the Rockers did. They wore pink and did the heart attack. That was about as fancy as they got, I think. So in this case, the simplicity of the song is very appropriate for the tag team. Yeah, it's an interesting use of the pedal tone. So as opposed to the theme by Tony Williams and Jan Hammer, Eris, where you have this F that's just going... Underneath the whole song, and that's kind of what's holding the groove together. Here we have a pedal tone as well, but it's this steady, driving pedal tone that I think sort of pulls together what you're talking about with Anvil, with the boom, chit, boom, chit, those big kind of pounding drums. You have this, and this is just going the entire time. You have that main riff that's happening, and then we get to the second section, it's... And it just keeps going. And having that low E constantly driving forward, it just creates this constant momentum. Right, right. And what's notable, too, is that when the Heart Foundation split up in 91 and Brett became a solo guy and became IC champ and then world champ the next year, Brett kept this theme for a few years. And we've seen that happen with a lot of teams. Uh, I think in the case of Brett... The song still works as a solo theme because 
Brett had a very straightforward, no-nonsense style, like we've been talking about, of course. So even without Jim Neidhart, you can see this song still being a really good fit for him as a singles wrestler. Not as perfect as the next one, perhaps, but still really good. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, once Brett gets the leather jacket on and everything, this is driving and rocking. You got to remember when he first came into WWF, he was still just in the pink tights. I didn't have the jackets for a while there. The jackets do make everything. Yeah. The jackets made a big difference. It's it's weird to say that, but the jackets really did give Brett that certain something. And we're back here, ladies and gentlemen, a few more moments here with you. Vince McMahon is going to try to talk to a very, obviously, uh, this consonant Bret Hart. He's got to be terribly frustrated. Extremely frustrated over what has just happened. Whoa! Frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it! This is bullshit! Oh, he apologized, ladies and gentlemen. You screw me! Everybody screws me! And nobody does a goddamn thing about it! Nobody in the building cares. Nobody in the dressing room cares. So much goddamn injustice around here. I've had it up to here. We apologize, ladies and Everybody gentlemen. Everybody knows it. I know it. Everybody knows it. I should be the World Wrestling Federation champion. Get him out of the ring. Everybody just keeps turning a blind eye. You keep turning a blind eye to it. I got that gorilla monsoon. He turns a blind eye to it. Everybody in that goddamn dressing room knows that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Cut him off. If you don't like it, tough shit. So Brett would keep Heartbeat as his entrance theme until 1994, when he would get a new theme. This one is credited to Jim Johnston, Jimmy Hart, and J.J. McGuire, because it's Jim Johnston taking the Hart Foundation theme and doing his own version of it. So it's credited to all three guys. Uh, the theme also has two different names depending on the album it's released on. On WWF Full Metal, it's called Heart Attack. And on WWE Anthology, it's called Hitman. So let's hear Heart Attack slash Hitman. So Jim Johnston here clearly putting a little bit of that movie magic into this one, uh, updating the song and just making it sound better and fuller as well. Uh, obviously it having an album release helps with that too. Um, ostensibly it's the same song as Heartbeat, uh, same main melody and, and same percussion beat as well. The key difference here 
and this I think is one of Jim Johnston's finest achievements, is the introduction of that iconic, badass, squealing guitar. Of course, with the intro with the and then throughout the body of the song as well. And that accomplishes a couple different things. First of all, it makes Brett's version of the song stand out from the Heart Foundation version. It also gives Brett's version a much more memorable start to the song. Because starting with the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun isn't quite as catchy or ear-grabbing as that guitar squeal. Especially in an arena. Yes, and, and really having that guitar just makes the song sound so much more badass and cool, and it really gives it an attitude that wasn't there before. But overall, the song still feels like this heroic anthem. Uh, just, just an excellent theme here, Chris. Yes, this is a strong update from the original. Obviously, bringing in the real guitars, I think, fits Brett's character better. Cool dude in the leather jacket with the cool sunglasses, and everyone in the crowd wants to get this pair of sunglasses, which Vince McMahon is putting over on commentary as being worth some exorbitant amount of money that it's totally not worth. <laughs> but... I think there there are a few things that didn't age so well, in my opinion. I, I don't love the tone on the drums. However, this is also something that sounds a lot better in the arena than it does when you're just hearing it in the stock recording. Johnston's drum tone is very thin for rock. And, and I think that that was just something that was happening in that era. And also because I feel like he's not using real drums. These are electric drums. Yeah, we're still in that time period before the Attitude Era where Johnston really cranks up the metal, you know? And right, the, right. And they bring in the real drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, like that second version of Ken Shamrock's theme where yeah, they bring in the real drums. You're right, you're right. So he gets, Brett gets caught kind of in between those two eras. I would love to hear a Bret Hart theme written in that vintage when Jim Johnston had those resources. Because I, I do think that is the one thing that holds this theme back from being really, really strong. Uh, a huge update obviously gives Brett a certain level of prestige. I, I love the lead guitar tone, although I don't always love Johnston's note choices outside, of course, of the intro, which I think is completely iconic. I agree with you. I, I think that there's something about those whammied notes as they come up with the stereoed out reverb effect that he's got on the guitar and all that overdrive that when you hear it in an arena, you're like, whoa, what's about to happen? And here comes Bret Hart, and he's going to make his way to the ring, and business is about to pick up, as JR would say. Definitely, definitely. And what's interesting, too, about the opening is that it's one of the few examples, I think, of... A, a musical stinger in a wrestling theme. Because usually with a stinger in an entrance theme, it's either a sound effect, like the Stone Cold Glass Shatter, the Undertaker Gong, the Mankind Car Wreck, or it's a vocal, like If You Smell, or Can You Dig It, Sucker, or It's Me, It's Me, It's DDP. But in this case, the stinger is actual music. 
and you, yeah, you don't... it's a high D note. It's kind of like Brock Lesnar's "Wee right. do wee do wee do." Like that's an actual guitar note. Those are those are real notes being played. Yeah, yeah, and you don't hear that too often in wrestling, which is pretty cool. And I, I say to this day, it's definitely one of the more recognizable stingers in wrestling. It directs your brain. You hear yeah. the note, and it directs your brain. So, for example, I think you and I have talked about this with Natalia, right? Right. Sometimes right, yeah. you'll hear that little opening stinger, and you're like, "Oh, oh here, man, comes, here Brett. comes Brett!" Oh, oh it's just Natty. <laughs> but uh, you know, we've been talking a lot so far about Brett being a straightforward, serious kind of wrestler. But it's not like he was a plain wrestler either. You know, he wasn't just a guy who went out there with black trunks and black boots. Brett had some flair to him. You know, the the pink color scheme and the sunglasses, the bomber jacket, the heart designs. But he never got too over the top with it. He always managed to keep his feet in the serious pool. And I think the same is true with this song. Because I can sort of envision like this neon pink aura emanating from the song. And the squealing guitars are like straight out of an 80s action movie. But the song is still meant to be taken seriously as a proper badass theme. It's, you know, it's a fine line to walk, but I think the theme does it well. Yes, I actually think that Johnston's limitations as a lead player play in Brett's favor perfectly here because he has that very, very high squealing tone. But outside of those whammy notes at the beginning of the song, all of the leads that happen when we get to the little B section break of the... They're pretty limited in terms of notes. There's not a whole lot going on, but you have that very chaotic tone. It's just enough. If it was... Ingve Malmsteen, sweet picking type stuff, it wouldn't fit Brett. This is just enough. It would be way too much. You know, I think Brett's a little bit more conservative with his guitar riffs than, you know, an Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's for sure. Even like Kirk Hammett, those level of leads wouldn't be right here. Mm. Something else I was thinking of uh, is that this song is very similar to Roman Reigns' theme. Not the actual songs, but the circumstances. Because you had Bret Hart, the breakout star of his team, being given the big push and becoming the face of the company and winning all of the belts and so forth. His new theme was basically a remake of his tag team theme. And you've got Roman Reigns, the intended breakout star of his team, being given the big push and becoming the face of the company and winning all the belts. And his new theme was basically a remake of his team's entrance theme. So there's a little connection there between Brett and Roman in that sense. I thought it was pretty interesting. Well, I'll go a little bit further. I'll one-up you here if we're going to get dorky about things. So then let's go to Roman's cousin, The Rock. He also got his theme from breaking out from the Nation of Domination. That's because right. Because the Nation yes. of Domination, they had their original series of themes, but towards the end there, they had what is basically the core of the Rock's theme song. Like that groove, dun, that like dun, particular dun, flow. Yeah. Dun, it's it's dun, all dun, there. Dun, dun, yeah. Yeah. And, and that ends up being the Rock's theme. Yeah. Great call there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Welcome back, fans, to WCW Monday Nitro, where we're breathless after that ladder match we've just seen, but we're just beginning. Now we're going to take you live, Mean Gene Oakland, talking to Bret the Hitman Hart, Gene. Tony, with the announcement earlier on from President Ric Flair of World Championship Wrestling, I've set up camp back in the locker room area with this man, Bret the Hitman Hart, and as you heard earlier on, the Nature Boy Ric Flair, as president of WCW, announcing a mandatory United States title defense for Bret the Hitman Hart. That's coming up on February the 21st at Super Bowl. Tonight, however, in a non-title bout, you've got Booker T. You've got a full plate here, I must say. You know, I don't know what Ric Flair's problem is, you know. You know, I've always been a jam-up guy. I've always been, I've always been a guy that's never ducked anything, anybody, anytime, anywhere. Now, Ric Flair, you know, this, this is the case of a guy that's carrying around a grudge. He's had a grudge against me since I've come here, and, uh, you know, that's fine. He wants to throw me in a ring tonight with Booker T. Who is Booker T? Who is this guy to even have a match with me, let alone a non-title match, because he's a loser? He's not going to get a title shot. You can forget about that. Well, he is not a loser. You know He's that. He's a Brett. loser. Now, Booker T, I want to ask you a question. Have you got the guts to step in the ring with the excellence of execution tonight? Do you know that your life is on the line? Your career is on the line. All the little kids at home, they're going to watch me tear you up and break you in little pieces. Is that what you want? I'm sure that's what Ric Flair wants. Hey, well, I'll tell you one thing about Booker T. This man has held numerous titles in World Championship Wrestling, and there's a guy that we would be deserving of a chance at your United States title. Let me tell you, let me tell you about who deserves a shot at the United States Heavyweight Let's hear title. It. I'm the champion. I ought to know. You know, I've, I've been sizing up guys since I came to the WCW, and I think the one guy that stands out the most, the guy that I think has earned a title shot, L. Dandy, I think you're a heck of a wrestler. You're a great technician in the ring, and you're a jam-up guy. Whoa. I don't see any Whoa. reason. Wait a minute. L. Dandy has been wrestling in, in, in the cruiserweight division here. Please. He's a great wrestler. He's a great wrestler, but my goodness sakes, they're 50 pounds Who difference. are you to, to, to doubt L. Dandy? Because this guy's a serious professional. Well, let's talk about some serious how about, contenders. How about hypnosis? Let's get thrown Psychosis? Psychosis? Whatever, whatever. He's a great wrestler, you know. You can say what you want. You can try to tear these guys down and take them down. But Psychosis has also he's been a high flyer of the highest yes, magnitude. But he's this guy's still a cruiserweight. Let's let's get let's okay, get some. How about Dean Malenko? I was going to give him a title shot. He was the big man. Oh. Wanted to injure me. Hey, come injure me now, you little punk. He's sitting at home with some kind of hokey injury. This is a real injury, Dean Malenko. Dean this Malenko. is like groin pull the likes you've never seen in your whole life. Well, he right now is nursing a very bad sprained ankle. Yeah. And as Ooh. far as that groin pull, you know people that compete in football and basketball. A lot of champions have to play hurt. Oh, yeah. You, so you're, what are you saying? I won't play hurt? I'll play hurt. I'm going to play hurt tonight. And I'm going to take this uh, Booker T and show exactly what I've said a minute ago. He doesn't deserve a title shot. And Ric Flair, you go ahead and bring up your grudge. you got some kind of a grudge on me. You can, you can try to force me into situations. You're going to put me in a, in a title match with whomever you want, whenever you want. That's fine, Ric Flair. That's fine, because you know why you're jealous of me? It's because I beat you. I beat you the day I came in, and I beat you every time I ever stepped in the ring with you, and you just got a grudge against me. That's all. Make no mistake about it. On February right? the 21st Am I right? in Oakland, yeah, I'm right. you're going to be facing somebody, and that U.S. title will be on the line, Mr. Hart. Whatever. Thank you very much. Tony, a man that's not too happy, at least about defending the United States title, Brett the Hitman Hart. 
Back to you, my friend. So at the tail end of 1997, Brett leaves the WWF under some less than preferable circumstances, shall we say, and he goes to the WWF's main competition, WCW. So we must bid adieu to the legendary Bret Hart WWF theme and say hello to the first of Bret's WCW themes. This one he used from 97 to 98. It's by Craig Northey, and it's called Hitman in the House. Okay, let's rip this band-aid off here. Uh, You know, obviously, Brett going to a new company requires him to have a new theme. I was excited about what this new theme was going to be. I can remember vividly in my head thinking at like 10 or 11, wow, you gotta write a new theme song for Brett Hart. I wonder what his theme song's going to be on WCW. Yeah, and we've seen over the years how one wrestling company will try to mimic the theme that a wrestler had in another company. Uh, Impact has had a long, long list of ripoff themes to their name. Same with WWE, even. You know, right now, Matt Riddle is coming out to a regulate knockoff in NXT. In this case, WCW, which was also well-known for its ripoff themes, uh, spe- Wait, are you trying to tell me that Diamond Dallas Page's theme song is not some sort of original composition? Uh, listen, I, I don't want to spread any fake rumors now, alright? I'm just saying the truth is out there. I- I'll get on all music later and I'll see what I can find. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, WCW decided to go in a different direction here. Uh, this is a fairly decent schism from what we have been used to with Brett's themes. Not as big a leap as Eris is, of course, but still, even though Heartbeat and Heart Attack can be considered a form of rock and roll, they easily skew more towards the poppy side of rock, with all the keyboards and whatnot. Hitman in the House, which is just a terrible name by the way, it goes for the edge. Uh, This is definitely a harder bluesier song than we're used to with Brett. Uh, Even has something of a talk box effect in there as well, which we haven't heard before. Um, Yeah, he's saying Hitman. Hitman, whoa. Hitman, whoa. And despite retaining that opening guitar wheel, the the riffs of the song and the melodies are all different 
than the WWF ones. So we're dealing with a new kind of beast here, uh, Chris. Well, if I could describe the trends in rock music from 1992 to 1998, it would be in this sound. <laughs> so everything starting in 1998 started embracing this tuning called drop D tuning. And the reason a lot of hard rock guitar players started to favor this is because it allows you to do one finger power chords and you can do a lot of them faster. So this song, as you said, follows that basic bluesy pedal. It's like the most standard of standard blues riffs. It's just hit man. It's almost the Batman theme song, isn't it? Hit Yeah. Um yeah, I think I actually when I hear it, I feel like Northy, the guy who wrote this song, is trying to do a knockoff in the style of the Jimmy Hart, Jim Johnston version without hitting it too hard on the nose. And then you also have that different guitar sensibility. The other thing I heard him do, which is another thing that a lot of guitarists started to do in hard rock in that era, is you start adding these chords over everything. All right, yeah. It's like a lot of that that's it's a very sort of a proggy thing. It's funny because we begin with prog rock and then we kind of move into prog metal here in 1998. Yeah, I think it being a harder edged song, the intent of it is to say, you know, this isn't your older brother's Bret Hart. This this well, is this is nineteen ninety eight, right? Yeah. Everything's tougher now. These yeah, this isn't your daddy's whatever. Yeah, the Bret Hart of the WWF was for little kids and this is for badass adults who watch WCW. This is where the big boys play. But to me, it's just a forgettable generic hard rock song that could just as easily belong to any WCW mid-carter on the roster. If you No, play- this was part of the problem. It was sort of emblematic of the larger problem in the Bret Hart launch. He wasn't doing exciting things and this theme song sort of typified how this company didn't know what they had in this guy yeah i mean you could play the song and if you didn't know what the title was or if you took out the hitman talk box part this could belong to johnny swinger or hugh morris or jerry flynn or whomever because it doesn't stand out in any way or sound like a bret hart theme Whereas, if you play me Sting's theme, or Goldberg's theme, or DDP's theme, I can get those in a heartbeat. There's a really fine line to making a Bret Hart knockoff song that doesn't sound generic, though. Because you have to have that straightforward beat. The actual guitar line in Bret Hart's theme that we all know and love is one of the most basic blues riffs in the book. It's like something you learn in the first four weeks of guitar lessons. Uh, Oh, yeah, I'm in drop D still. Yeah. Like, that little box right there, that is... 
basic guitar 101 so it's not as though they were going deep into the guitar books when they wrote Bret Hart's theme in 1988 but something about what Northy's doing here is really uninspired there's a magic to Brett's WWF themes. You know, it, it's it's this warmth that just... There's the B section. Yeah. It, what it yeah. is is that all-important B section where the organs come in and you get that those big, interesting da, chords. Yeah. Da, it, yeah it, the, it's heroic. It's majestic. Which I wish the Jim Johnson theme still had, and it doesn't. But all of that stuff really gives something more than just the... And you can actually feel it when you listen to the Jimmy Hart version in the sections where it's just that little main riff and that goes on for a little too long. The song really does become monotonous and it would be forgettable. It's all in the B section. Yeah, yeah. What surprises me, and you mentioned Jimmy Hart just now, is that they had Jimmy Hart under contract as one of their main composers in WCW during the late 90s, uh, who was also making themes for wrestlers, I would have assumed that they would have just paired the two together again to make a new theme. No, they made so many bad musical choices. They had Bob Mould from Husker Du, and they had him on the booking committee. I know! Yeah, it's it's weird as hell. Right, you you could have Bob Mould creating really, really cool wrestling themes. I mean, they had Bob the Mould Misfits writing, wrestling. Yes, right, you had the Misfits <laughs> wrestling instead of writing theme songs. Yeah, a lot of problems, a lot of problems. Craig Northey, by the way, I looked him up. He is a Canadian musician who was in a band in the 90s called Odds that had a few hits in Canada. And since then, he's written for Roseanne Cash, Gin Blossoms, Stephen Page. Uh, He's also composed for movies and TV shows. So the guy does have a resume. And who knows, maybe him being Canadian played a factor in getting him to do the theme for his uh, fellow countryman, Brett. I wonder if they knew each other. Maybe that's part of what was going on here. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But, um, yeah, perhaps having Brett's first theme in WCW be somewhat of a dud was a bad omen of sorts because he didn't exactly light the world on fire in that company. He had some really great matches with, you know, Flair and Benoit and a few other guys, but it wasn't like he was the megastar that he was in the WWF. Because, for one, there really wasn't any room for him in the main event scene. You know, you had Goldberg, Hogan, Sting, Savage, Nash. Having uh, him join the NWO was very, 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 very dumb. Bret Hart should have been there to clean up the NWO, and he should have gained allies when he got there, including Sting. Like You should have moved the entire story of WCW through Bret Hart starting in 1998. He gets there. He says, I'm a no-nonsense guy. I'm a hard worker. Hitman's about standing up for yourself and doing good things. In the NWO, these are a bunch of degenerates, and I'm going to clean them all up. And I need Sting. Sting, get out here, and you can have them have tensions. He can try to recruit Macho. 
all of these sorts of things. And, and instead, yeah, he had a good match with Flair, and I, I think he probably had a good match with Malenko on Raw, and I'm sure he had a good match with Benoit. Uh, I, I didn't look up all of these and kind of go back down memory lane fully for this episode, and, and I might at some point, because I, I really was excited about Bret Hart coming to WCW. There were a lot of matches I thought he could have that would be really good. But the NWO was just too all-encompassing, and eventually Bret gets subsumed into the NWO instead of becoming the person who leads the cleanup against them. It felt like Bret was just another cog in the wheel, which is what you don't want to happen to Bret Hart. You know, they, they put him in the U.S. title scene for much of 98, and he was also out for most of 99 because of injury and because Owen died. And when they finally give him the world title run at uh, Mayhem in November, they vacate the belt a month later. And then Brett wins it back at Starcade against Goldberg in screwy fashion. And then he vacates it again a month later because of his injuries. And then he's gone, retired. So Brett's first theme being this dime a dozen rock instrumental was unfortunately a sign of things to come for him in WCW. Yep. Yep. That's, uh, that's yeah, all there is uh, to yeah, it, I so, guess. No, I, 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 yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah I know. It's all hell. <laughs> it, 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 it sucked. <laughs> yeah, it, it's real depressing. <laughs> so uh, the other theme that Brett had in WCW could be found on the soundtrack to the documentary Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows. He used it from 1998 to 2000 when he left WCW. It's by Keith Scott and it's called Hitman Theme Intro. First and foremost. Oh, yeah. Great name. Just classic name. I mean, where do we start? Uh, as noticeable a difference there was between the overall sound of Brett's WWF themes and Hitman in the House, that does not hold a candle to the difference heard here between Hitman theme intro and the WWF themes. We have taken a wide left turn off the beaten path and into late 90s kind of grimy industrial I, I'd go so far as to call it quasi new metal even with the way it sounds I, I mean the days of upbeat peppy poppy new wave tinged Bret Hart themes are long gone here and that makes sense because unfortunately the days of Bret Hart being 
on top of the wrestling world are also long gone at this point in time. Brett is now just part of the muck and the mire of WCW, and that muck is rising by the day, Chris. So I am a little bit more bullish on this theme song than I think you are. I actually like this. In particular, I like the fact that this has, like, real big drums and well-produced drums at that. Like, I like the breakdowns later on in the section where you get those kind of washed-out drums. There's a little bit of a... Nine Inch Nails influence going on or filter going on in the drum production here. And and I do think that that actually works for Brett's character. In the guitar, we have the introduction of the whammy pedal, which became fairly ubiquitous starting in this era because of Rage Against the Machine. Uh, and, and you can hear that. So like all of those guitar notes where it goes, wah, 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 wah. Like the guitar player is actually just playing the same chords and that glissando down is all being done on a pedal i i think you know the issue here is when brett came out to this theme song he wasn't doing much it was just a big entrance i remember hearing this the first time and this is like they kind of he was off tv for a few weeks or think or something before he came back out to this new theme song and i remember thinking it was a big improvement but it's still not particularly memorable it's more of a feeling so you still only kind of get an impression of this theme you don't remember what the b section is in it yeah i mean i don't hate it it's not a bad song and i think outside it's the... better than hit man it is yes it, yeah, right like that is clearly this is clearly the stronger composition of the two it is, but I just don't see it as a Bret Hart theme. I don't even see it as a wrestling theme, to Whoa. be quite honest. It's called Hitman Theme Intro, which, again, is a terrible title for an entrance theme, but it was released as part of the soundtrack to a documentary, Wrestling with Shadows. And when I listen to it, I don't think of Bret Hart coming out to wrestle a match. I think of dvd menu music i think of ps1 bmx racing video game music i even think of porno music to be quite honest there are so many different venues where a song like this could be placed and a wrestling entrance is not the first one that comes to mind for me anyway I get what you're saying, but you also have to remember that Diamond Dallas Page was coming off to a knockoff of, oh, what song was it? And Lex Luger was coming out to essentially the core progression from Megadeth's Trust at 1.5 speed. Listen to it. It's the same chord progression. I mean, these guys weren't necessarily coming out to super inspiring music other than maybe Sting, who had that great theme song that kept building up in speed and intensity the whole time as he was coming down. And even the NWO. At a certain point, the NWO theme, as wonderful as Rock House is, it started to become the white noise of everyone's life because you'd hear that theme song over and over and over again. So in the continuity of what WCW was doing in 1998, yeah, yeah, like this was actually one of the better and stronger theme songs. It wasn't, it wasn't Mortis's theme song, which is probably my favorite theme song if we're just picking the year 1998 in WCW. That's probably the best theme they had at that time. But it, it's, 
not horrible. It, it fits him because it's slow and driving. And, and I think that that is the thing that Northey and Keith Scott really sort of honed in on with Bret Hart. He's this technical guy. He's this calculating guy. And especially at that point, I mean, you listen to the interviews and stuff that he's cutting in that era. He's a very serious man. And they wanted his themes to reflect that, but also that rock edge, which was, I mean, Bret Hart's theme in 1988 reflected what modern rock was at that time, which is something kind of like Bon Jovi. And Bret Hart's theme in 1998 reflected acts more like Filter and Nine Inch Nails and hard rock and what would eventually become new metal, that kind of post-industrial rock. I think WCW was better at being current in a lot of ways until WWF caught up in 1998 when that second Shamrock theme comes out, that second The Rock theme comes out. All those themes get those hard-driving updates, and then WWF kind of pulls ahead and never looks back at that point. But WCW at least was closer to having their finger on the pulse of what rock music sounded like back then, not saying you have to like it. I'm just saying that this is what rock music sounded like back then. I see your point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just I don't think that you need to make Bret Hart seem hip and cool and modern. Uh, I, you're such an old man. How old are you? Come listen, on. Listen, I like Nine Inch Nails and Tool and all those bands. But with Bret, it, it's weird. I, I can't picture him being that guy or needing to be that guy. Face or heel, Bret Hart is like a Teflon character. He's not like Hogan where you need to do a complete overhaul and put him in all black and change the music and grow facial stubble because the character is so out of date and, and, and boring. The Bret Hart formula works. You don't need to completely change it. You can tweak it like 97, but you don't need to reinvent the wheel with Bret Hart. This is such a simple compositional formula that it's really hard to not reinvent the wheel and not end up with something that's extraordinarily stock. It's tough, yeah. It's tough to make a new theme for Brett after him having a you know, such an iconic theme for, for many years. And it's tough, too, for me, to picture Brett having any other themes. I will admit that. But um, a little side note here, a bit of info about Keith Scott. Uh, Not Scott Keith, that's a different wrestling guy. Uh, Keith Scott is another Canadian, surprise, surprise. And he's worked with everyone from Cher to Tina Turner, Brian Ferry, Craig Northey, funny enough. But his main gig is being one of the guitarists for Brian Adams. Uh, In fact, they've been working together since... Cuts Like a Knife, which was in 83. I mean, this is the other thing you have to consider. Bret Hart might have been thrilled to have these themes written by these guys because he was familiar with these dudes. So maybe these were great fits, at least in his mind. And I'll give WCW the credit for using artists that have a lot of professional experience and know their way around the instruments. Because, you know, Hitman in the House... And Hitman's theme intro, despite being, to me, pretty generic and forgettable, are technically proficient songs, as are most wrestling themes. But I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that I prefer 
Brett's WWF themes to the WCW themes by a country mile. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that the theme that is coming up here is why the Johnston and Jimmy Hart compositions are the stronger of the two. It, it just fits him, but I think it fits him because that's the theme that we heard him come out to in every match that all of us saw growing up. The final theme of the episode was first used when Brett mended fences and officially came back to the WWE after many, many years in 2010. And they gave Brett a new theme. Not too new. It's pretty similar to his classic theme. But still, it's technically a new song. This is off of WWE The Music A New Day Volume 10. It's by Jim Johnston and it's called Return of the Hitman. Like I said, this is essentially the same basic song as the classic WWF version, the same bare bones. Uh, you've got the opening guitar squeal, that same main melody, the same heroic, take charge, badass attitude, but uh, Big Jimmy here has clearly done some more of that movie magic and retooled it a little bit to give it an updated shine. Not too much, it's not a complete 180 but there's little things like adding a few more guitars and emphasizing the guitar work more so in this version, making the drum pattern a little bit more complex and increasing the tempo a notch or two. And there's little extra bits and bobs in there as well. Normally, when a classic theme song gets updated, I'm a little hesitant about it because it's like, why mess with a good thing? But in this case, I actually really like this new version a lot because it, it feels exciting and new. But there's also that nostalgia factor at play as well. Uh, what do you think about it, uh, Chris? Oh, yeah. I think that on balance, this is just a great composition. So I'm not crazy about some of the tweaks. I don't like how the pedal note that is just was just 
has now been replaced with like a guitar that's kind of oscillating between an E and an F where it's like there's your new metal creeping in. So even Jim Johnston gets infected with the virus. It, it gets everyone soon enough, <laughs> Andrew. But I love the C-section where you have all yes, the I guitar love that harmonies part. coming yeah. in. Lots of those glorious thirds and ba stuff. Na, 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 yeah, they're very reminiscent of Queen. Na. So you get that kind of royalty effect. And, and it very much fits in to... Brett's character, it, the horn, the guitar, and the synthesizer standing in for the horn. This is wrestling royalty, even though he's the hip man, especially towards the end of his career where he started, you know, really in our minds becoming one of the best of all time because he was, and he was also talking about it, and, and that was kind of his claim in the ring. This fits him very, very well. Yeah, it has that hopeful spark, that, that that inspiring spark that grabs your soul. There's and an ascending note pattern yes. there that is, even though it's new and you've never heard it before, it's also nostalgic. And that, I think, was what was missing from the WCW themes. Because Hitman in the House was a, a barroom, bluesy rock song, and Hitman theme intro was drop-tuned and kind of gloomy. But Brett having this song is like two puzzle pieces just clicking together perfectly. Well, they didn't treat him like royalty in WCW. They they treated him... They only got the one part of Bret Hart, and they didn't get the other part of Bret Hart, which is what I was talking about in, in how, in my opinion, they sort of misused him in WCW. My two cents on that. I, I think that this is the theme song of someone who is in the upper echelon and you would know that immediately and and if you had any doubts they would be completely resolved by the end of that c section yeah the right when we go back home to the a section again yeah you'd know yeah it's great it's great and i think there's something comforting too about the fact that it's jim johnston doing this song and not CFOs. Not trying to throw shade at CFOs, of course. No, but... you can with me. I, I mean, okay. I, I think that they're, they're not batting a great average right now. Well, they weren't even in WWE at this point right. in uh, 2010. But in any event, I just appreciate the fact that the man who composed the iconic 94 to 97 theme was in charge of doing this one as well. It, it just feels right, you know? Absolutely. All right, well, that was our look at the themes of Brett the Hitman Heart, both the good and the not-so-good, that's for sure. But really, that's the story of Brett's life. You know, the good and the bad, the high highs and the low lows. And I know, looking back over the past 20 years or so, fate's been giving Brett a few more kicks to the dick than necessary. Uh, the way I, it's horrible what's been happening to Bret Hart. I, I mean, I know he's kind of a jerk sometimes, uh, often, but I, I still, I mean, him having to have a stroke and having to fight back, it's been hard to watch. His career ending so abruptly because of the concussions, the stroke, the prostate cancer diagnosis, which thankfully he got through, and also the sad fact that you know, he's lost so many close friends and family members in his life. Of the five guys in the 97 Heart Foundation, 
Brett is the only one who is still alive. Owen's gone, Neidhart's gone, Pillman's gone, and Bulldog's gone. And that was 97. Not 57, not 67. That was 97. That was only 21 years ago. That's a lot of weight to carry. It is. It's been a rough road. But I think it's also important to remember that Brett has accomplished so much good in his life. His contribution to wrestling is just immense. He's made so many wrestling fans happy over the years, including myself and you too, Chris, and provided us with incredible memories and matches. And his legacy as one of the best wrestlers ever is beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I don't think that Bret Hart will ever hear this, but I just, I want to put that out there and remind everyone that Bret Hart has done good in his life. Not just done well, he's done good. Um, What about you, Chris? Any final thoughts on Bret Hart? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the strongest thing I can say for Bret Hart beyond all of the excellent matches is that Bret Hart at his best, and this was sometimes a little bit more of the Bret Hart self-stylized myth than it was necessarily in the ring in the Attitude Era, especially with some of his comments about Shawn Michaels and his dubious sexuality and all of that. But Bret Hart had the vision of the child-friendly, family-friendly babyface who stood for good traditional values and he wasn't like the first guy to ever do that but to do that with a bit of a cool stink on it you know he's got the leather jacket and he's got the long hair but he's also about working hard and doing good things Bret Hart was someone that kids could actually look up to as a professional wrestler unlike you know Razor Ramon, who's cool, or Doink, who's cool, but, like, they weren't role model characters unless you were going to try to do the whoopee cushion off the top of your parents' bed or something. Or be a cocaine trafficker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'll get you in trouble in school, especially these days. No, I I think Brett was able to update and put a little bit of edge on that white meat baby face. Absolutely. Very well said. Very well said. And that's going to do it for this episode of Music of the Mat. Thank you so much for listening. And Chris, thank you again for being on the show. You're always a fountain of musical knowledge that goes right over my head every time. Uh, If you want to plug anything, go right ahead. Absolutely. So I've got this other show called Shake Them Ropes, which you can hear on Voices of Wrestling. Hopefully you listen to it. And if you don't listen to it, this is my pitch to you now to listen to it, please. Please, I'm begging you. I have some other shows. One of them is called Don't Worry About the Government. You can hear that over at don'tworry.tv and on iTunes and Stitcher. My other show, my other other show, is the All in the Family podcast, which you can hear at allinthefamilypodcast.com or go on iTunes and Stitcher. Look it up. Take a listen. It's a fun show. Take a listen. We're doing some good stuff on there. Thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you. And Music of the Mat is also part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. You can find some fantastic wrestling podcasts on there, like Shake Them Ropes, 
All hey, out. that's me. That's you. That's you. Voicesofwrestling.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Music of the Mat. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew T. Rich. You can find the YouTube playlist for this episode and all past episodes at the VOW forums, voicesofwrestling.com slash forum. And of course, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. Chris, thanks again, and I can't wait until you're back on the show uh, for some more fun and frolic. Yeah! (laughs) All right, for the guitar hero himself, Chris Novembrino, I'm Andrew Rich, and I'll see you next time on Music of the Mat. Take care, guys. Music of the Mat is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The songs used throughout this show are property of their respective copyright holders. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery.